Anyone listening to this program knows that we're big fans of Astronomy Magazine. Over the years, we have uh, quoted from it on many occasions. Uh, their columnist, Bob Berman, was a guest previously. And on the newsstands currently is a special issue of the magazine. It's its 500th issue, and it's filled with all kinds of cool facts in addition to the usual uh, interesting stuff that's put before us. I'm pleased to note that the senior editor from Astronomy will join us to talk about this very issue, and I'm delighted to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Richard Talcott. Thank you. Um, apparently, looking at the magazine, uh, this, this whole idea about the, the 500th issue was something that you brought to the magazine's attention. Yeah, I was just uh, brainstorming one day and happened to think after we had uh, recently done our 40, 40th anniversary issue that 40 times 12 works out to 480 and that <laughs> 20 more issues wouldn't be all that far into the future. So basically figured out when the number 500 issue would be, and it turned out to be the March 2015. It's not part of your 500 Curious Facts, but you, the magazine opened up with such a bang that I cannot resist citing the opening page that said, let's cut the UFO crap. <laughs> It's always a good idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, and there's a picture accompanying it that shows someone looks like someone threw a hubcap over a uh, over a, a fence, and that's about the usual uh, standard for UFO photos. So I mean, yes, I, I just it was a very funny little piece you guys wrote. Yeah, yeah, we we like to have fun with those kinds of things and point out that there's no real scientific evidence that such things do exist in the sky. Certainly, there are objects up there that are unidentified, um, and obviously the more you know about the sky, the fewer of those objects there are. But no, no scientist has really come up with uh, any definitive proof that they happen to be alien spaceships or anything along those lines. Sad but true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's, uh, I, I, okay, there, there are several of them that kind of all tied together, and if you don't mind, I want to just kind of lump them together because I think they're, they're related. Um, there's a column about the the, six, the 13th sign of the zodiac. The fact, uh, one of the facts is that the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn are, are evidently now misnamed. The odds that your horoscope are wrong are probably seven to one in favor of. Well, let's just start with those those three to clump with. They're kind of all related, I guess. Sure, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that over the course of thousands of years, and people have been looking at the sky for thousands of years, obviously, that the positions of the stars in the sky relative to Earth's orbit around the sun have changed so that several thousand years ago, for instance, the North Star was nowhere near Polaris in the, in the Little Dipper. And because of this change, which is called precession, and it basically comes about because Earth spins like a top and it wobbles around its axis, uh, it turns out that most of the positions of where the sun is at a given time of year has been shifting, and it shifts over a 26,000-year period. So as you can guess, if you've been observing the skies for 5,000 years, that's a significant chunk of 26,000, and those cause the positions of uh, where the sun is in the sky to change over the years. But it's curious to me that they're so far off that, that, you know, almost anyone who thinks they're a cancer, for example, I mean, I'm supposed to be a cancer, but in reality, I, I'm a, I guess I'm a Gemini, and, and almost everybody is not what they think they are. Yeah, it turns out that astrologers have fixed the uh, positions of their so-called zodiacal constellations a long, long time ago, <laughs> well before we came up with more scientific boundaries, uh, or more logical boundaries, perhaps. And for whatever reason, they still stick by what 
the sun's position was those thousands of years ago instead of updating them currently. So the uh, constellations in most cases don't coincide anymore to um, where the sun was on the day you were born. And, and just let's mention specifically that I guess it's Ophiuchus, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, not being an astronomer, but it's really the, really is the 13th uh, constellation. If you Right. It turns out now with the way the... Um, the, the way the sun's path goes through the sky and the way scientists have devised the system, turns out that Ophiuchus, which is near where Scorpius is, uh, has a fairly large chunk of the sun's path in it, uh, actually significantly larger than Scorpius is. So it's, it's kind of interesting that Scorpius is one of the main constellations that people tend to think of, but the sun's only in there for um, about a week or so, whereas it spends closer to a month in Ophiuchus. And one thing that I guess is sort of arbitrary, I, I imagine, is that Scorpius or Scorpio, um, when I first learned the constellations, I kept thinking, what do you mean Libra? Well, this looks like, looks like the claws of the scorpion. And I guess in, 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 in years past, they did consider that, that the brightest stars of Libra to actually be part of the scorpion. Right. In fact, it's two brightest stars, uh, Zubinel Janubi and Zubinesh Shamali, two names that I always found very interesting, um, actually mean northern and southern claw. So that's... Uh, certainly relative to when it was viewed as part of the scorpion. Well, I guess that shows how arbitrary it really is. I, th I think they should put them back and make it the claws of the scorpion. <laughs> <laughs> it would be kind of nice, yeah, because Libra itself is a rather boring constellation. You know, people think that it's often part of lore that, you know, we're just an average star, we're just kind of a puny star in the sky, but it turns out when you do a survey... Um, we're not bad. Uh, our sun is really not bad. And, um, and I know one of your stats was that uh, the sun is actually bigger than 80% of the stars in the universe. Yeah, it turns out that most of the stars that are out there turn out to be rather puny little stars uh, called red dwarfs that don't put out very much light. One of the reasons that was kind of overlooked for a long time is that they don't put out very much light. And so if you're looking across a good chunk of our galaxy, you're only going to see a relatively few of them. In fact, the uh, closest star to Earth, which is called Proxima Centauri, is one of these red dwarfs. And even though it's the closest star to us, it's invisible to the naked eye. So that kind of gives you an idea that there's a lot of stars that are faint out there that just don't show up on your typical uh, surveys with naked eyes or binoculars and those kinds of things. So those are the very prominent ones. And one of the reasons that they're so common is because they last for a long time. Uh, the smallest kinds of stars, which have roughly 10% of the sun's mass, can live for a trillion years. And since the universe is only about 14 billion years old, any red dwarf star that's been born at some point in the universe is still alive. The biggest stars, uh, which can have maybe a hundred times the sun's mass, live only a few million years, and so a lot of them have lived and gone by. So part of it is that there's just a lot of these really small stars out there being born, and the other part is that they live so long that we tend to see more of them than we would if you took a census over the history of the universe. Well, there's one little fact that, I mean, I was very depressed when I first learned that no um, red dwarf is actually visible to the naked eye, even as you mentioned, the very closest one and some that are a little bit brighter. They almost make it, but not quite. But yep. um, for those who would like to imagine that with all those red dwarfs out there, um, that's probably where we're going to find life, some planet orbiting it. There's a few, um, there's a few wrinkles in that. Uh, your fact number 495 was that there's a flare star, red dwarf, that flared 10,000 times the largest known solar flare 
on uh, on our sun. So even though they're kind of quiet little stars, a lot of them apparently, I guess, just at times all hell breaks loose. Yeah, that's true. And in fact, it's happened in Proxima Centauri, the uh, closest one to us. And astronomers think it has something to do with the magnetic fields on these objects, which can unleash a lot of energy. You might imagine that if you had a flare on the sun, it would take a really big one to be visible. But on these small stars, something of a similar size would really stand out. And it turns out that probably because they're so small and the activity can build up for a long period of time because things happen there slowly, uh, they build up for a long time, and then when, the, when they finally let loose, they really go wild. Yeah, and it'd be bad for anybody trying to live on a planet orbiting one of those uh, <laughs> those little, little yeah, red dwarfs. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be on the side <laughs> facing the star at that time. <laughs> Well, fact number 260 I wanted to mention, this our sun is apparently in a local bubble out in space. And, uh, and I guess that the, there's, a, there's a much decreased density of material where we are currently. And I guess my question was, is that, do we think that's from a local supernova or why is that? Yeah, people think that it is because there was an exploding star uh, probably several million years ago, and we have no evidence of what star it might have been or where its remains are right now. But it's cleared out a bubble that's about 400 light years wide, and you can imagine that would take an awfully long time to build out something that big. There's about 10% the density of atoms in this region than there is typically in our galaxy. And so it is pretty uh, low density. And just to give your listeners an idea of what kind of density we're talking about. There's probably only about one atom in every 20 cubic centimeters. So kind of something that you, you can imagine holding something that's 20 cubic centimeters across, which would be a few cubic inches. Uh, there'd be one atom in there. And at the surface of Earth, there's literally trillions and trillions of air molecules in each uh, um, volume that large. Yeah, it's a little thin for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you uh, want to breathe that. Uh, you had a couple facts I wanted to kind of lump together here um, about about our, our galaxy. Um, well, I guess number two thirty nine. Most stars in the galaxy are actually doubles or more. I mean, it's the minority of stars like our own that are solitary. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, a lot of that has to do with stars being in clusters. Uh, you'll you'll see globular clusters where there's literally hundreds of thousands of stars packed together. But even out in the general population, and the, there turns out to be a lot of double stars. And in fact, uh, one of the brighter stars in the winter sky, which is called Castor, actually has six members to it. And so there's lots of these things out there. W again, one of it is statistical, is that if you have three stars and two of them are in a double system, already two-thirds of the stars in your sky are in double systems, even though only half of the systems are. So a little bit of it is that the fact that uh, when you do have these multiple systems, they kind of skew the numbers. But certainly something on the order of about 70% of the stars that we know belong to systems with at least two stars. And one thing that I am really truly fascinated by, we've, all, we've often tried to visualize what our Milky Way looks like, and, and people will have various pictures of other galaxies that say, well, this is probably what we think um, our own galaxy looks like. Well, that's changed recently. I guess someone has now concluded, based on some good science, that we're actually a barred spiral galaxy, not your basic pinwheel-shaped one. Yeah, and that's something that's only come out within the last uh, 10 to 15 years. It's kind of fascinating. When I started um, working at the magazine and getting interested in astronomy, the, everyone thought it was your classical pin pinwheel shape that our galaxy would take. And part of the problem is 
figuring out where you are because we're kind of in the middle of a giant forest and it's hard to see where all the various trees are. Um, but observations over, as I said, the last uh, 10, 15 years have pretty much conclusively shown that there's a large bar that's probably about 20 to 30,000 light years across that makes up the bulk of the center of our galaxy and then the spiral arms wind out from the edge of that bar. And let's give some uh, credit where credit is due to Harlow Shapley, which doesn't happen nearly enough on this program, I think. <laughs> I guess back in the 1910s, he took a look at these globular clusters, these, these huge collections of stars, and said, well, I wonder how these are distributed throughout the galaxy. And he rather cleverly figured out that, well, judging by where these things turn up, uh, we must be pretty far from the galaxy center, and he was right. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a really important uh, leap in deduction that he made that turned out to be true um, because it doesn't take a genius to go outside on the night sky and say, hey, we look like we're at the center of everything. Uh, it's a pretty obvious conclusion to reach if you don't look into it more carefully. But trying to figure out where the sun actually lies in our galaxy has been a problem that people have tried to solve for a long time. And almost all the... Uh, observations up until the early 20th century seemed to show we were near the center or at the center. And it was only by looking at these very large conglomerations of stars that can have up to a million or so stars in them, and they all seemed to be clustered around a spot in the constellation Sagittarius that he kind of came to the conclusion, well, if the biggest things in our galaxy are collected around this one spot, doesn't it make sense that the center of our galaxy is there, too? And obviously it turned out to be right, so that was a pretty good uh, deduction. Yeah, well done, Harlow. And there's one here where astronomy meets geology, which I think utterly fascinating, your fact number 347 that basically our planet is generating half of its radiation from within, presumably from decay of, of atomic, uh, well, basically from atomic power as things decay, which, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, when you come to planets like Jupiter and Saturn, a lot of their heat is left over from when it formed. But on Earth, although a little bit of that heat is left over from when we formed, it's kind of slowly seeping out. It's usually the uh, elements uranium and thorium are the two biggest ones uh, deep down in the center of Earth where um, they tend to have sunk over the billions of years that we've been around. They're generating energy that kind of keeps things going down there, gives, a, gives rise to uh, volcanoes and all those kinds of fun things and the general heat that kind of comes up through the surface of Earth. Um, we're in Wisconsin, and there's not a whole lot of heat coming up from the Earth right now. <laughs> but uh, in certain areas, you see it pretty actively um, during around the Ring of Fire, around the Pacific Ocean, and places like that. Well, in the Guinness Book of World Records uh, part of astronomy, it looks like um, the biggest and the you know <laughs> is always being reevaluated. Um, you've got a couple facts: 38 and 127. Currently, we now think the largest crater in our whole system represents the Martian Northern Hemisphere, and the Olympus Mons, which was long thought to be the, the largest um, mountain or volcano in the solar system, I guess has now been topped by the, uh, the peak they found at Vesta, where it was, it was smacked pretty hard in the past. Right, and people had an idea that the uh, object on Vesta was large for quite a while, um, because if you took observations with the Hubble Space Telescope, you saw that there was this big dimple at the bottom of the asteroid, and people thought that the dimple 
was probably a large crater that had a central peak to it. But only when the Dawn spacecraft arrived a couple of years ago did we get really good measurements of it and find out that, yeah, it actually turns out that the um, mountain at the center of this crater at the South Pole turns out to be about 13 miles high or so, which is the largest that we know of in the solar system so far. And we have pretty good observations of a lot of these kinds of objects now. So it, it may well hold the record for quite a while now. And the uh, the largest crater is actually something that has been found based on spacecraft measurements at Mars that turned up that this is actually a little bit larger than one on the moon known as the South Pole Aitken Basin, which had held the record of being the largest for um, several decades until the observations of spacecraft showed that the Martian one was larger. And I cannot resist interjecting at this point, talking about the Dawn spacecraft risen by Vesta. It is It is pulled out of its parking orbit and is approaching Ceres. And as of this week, some of these pictures being beamed back of Ceres are the best we've ever gotten, and it must be very exciting at the magazine. Oh, for sure. There's, it's about uh, 50,000 miles away now and closing in fairly quickly. Um, and within the next month or two, it'll go into orbit around Ceres. So th this is kind of interesting. It's the first spacecraft that's visited two celestial objects and gone into orbit around both of them. So that's kind of cool. And we're finally seeing details. Even the Hubble Space Telescope hasn't shown Ceres to be much more than a blob with a few brighter areas and darker areas. But now we're starting to see craters and what look like patches of ice or snow on the surface. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get a lot more details coming up in the next uh, several weeks and several years. There's going to be some more cool findings this summer when the New Horizons spacecraft reaches Pluto, um, which happens in the middle of July, and that'll be the last uh, major object in our solar system to get a first look from scientists. Wow, good time to be at Astronomy Magazine, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're excited about it. Well, what maybe the most surprising fact out of all of your 500, it's not earth-shaking one, but it's just it, it's not what I thought was reality. You mentioned that sunlight from our local star, uh, is in fact 50% infrared, 40% visible, 10% UV. I, I always thought that our sun was, was cranking out uh, energy mostly in the, the, in the range of visible light, and, and I guess I was wrong and everybody else was. Well, perhaps slightly misinformed. I wouldn't necessarily say wrong. <laughs> it turns out that the range of visible radiation is pretty short. Um, if you want to get technical about it, there's about... Uh, 4,000 angstroms or 400 nanometers that the visible spectrum takes up, which is really a small portion of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah. And it turns out that sunlight does peak very strongly in that area. But it turns out also that there's a almost like a bell curve drop-off in radiation as you get to longer wavelengths. And so you've got some radiation coming from the sun in the infrared region, but the infrared region is so long that, that, that it stretches out for a long, long ways if you look at a graph of the electromagnetic spectrum. And all those little bits add up to a lot in the end. And so it turns out that the sun does give off a little bit more infrared than visible. Huh. And the other thing I should, I should comment on that, too, is that Earth's atmosphere blocks a lot of that infrared radiation. So it still turns out that more visible light reaches Earth's surface than the infrared does. It's just that the sun itself is giving off more infrared. So really the, the, the peak of the bell curve really still is in the visible, I guess. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Okay. And it's just that the infrared covers, covers so much more ground than the visible does that it adds up. Okay. I want to throw one, just a, a curveball out. Not a curveball, but there's one I just never heard about <laughs> this. It, you mentioned the number 41, a thorn 
Zitkow object is thought to be a giant star that has swallowed up a neutron star. And uh, I guess the first question is, are these things real or is this just something mathematicians have figured out at the, at the chalkboard? As many things in astronomy go, they first thought it up on a chalkboard <laughs> and then they found that there actually are objects like this. Or perhaps I should say they have good ideas that there are a few objects out there that are these things. And basically, we, we talked a little bit earlier about how most systems in the galaxy are multiple star systems. Mm -hmm. It's not unusual to think that there could be a system where one star has evolved so far and gone into becoming a neutron star, and the other star later on evolves into a red supergiant, and the red supergiant takes up so much space that the originally orbiting star, which is now the neutron star, could end up inside the outer atmosphere of the red supergiant. So it kind of looked at in that respect. It's not unusual that something like that could occur, um, but it does sound pretty wild. What kind of fingerprint are we looking for that would tell us that there's some kind of neutron star inside a big, bigger star? Well, a red supergiant is, is very cool. Uh -huh. so it doesn't give off a lot of visible light radiation. And um, like we were talking about the red dwarfs, they, uh, they tend to give off most of their radiation in the infrared part of the spectrum. Neutron stars, on the other hand, are very hot. So if you look at a red supergiant star and see a large percentage of light that's in shorter wavelengths near the visible, that would kind of clue you into the fact that there's something more than just the normal star going on there. I guess the more we learn, the more strange, bizarre uh, characters we find in the celestial zoo. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling there's more out there than we can even imagine. Yeah. Let's come back closer to our own solar system here. Um, some of your interesting facts. Uh, and this one, this I have to ask, why is this? Apparently, we've now studied Venus for the last few decades and have concluded that its rotation is slowing. We can actually measure this. Why the hell is that happening? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Yeah, observations made by spacecraft over the last uh, 20 years or so show that it's rotating about six and a half minutes slower now than it did 20 years ago. Um, six and a half minutes sounds like a large part of a day when you consider that Earth only takes 24 hours. Um, but Venus's rotation rate is a lot slower. It takes uh, something on the order of 243 days to rotate once. So six minutes isn't a lot out of that. But still, um, something that can slow down an entire planet is pretty interesting. The best guess right now is that it has something to do with weather cycles on Venus, just like on Earth. We can go through cycles that last for years or decades, um, like the El Nino um, can repeat. And some scientists at least think that it probably has something to do with weather patterns, but they don't really know for sure. And because there's really no spacecraft at Venus right now to continue observations, it's a little bit difficult to, for us to uh, learn about it for the next uh, foreseeable future anyway. Wow. So it really is just a guess. Nobody's got that one handled. No, no, and you have to watch it for a long period of time, so it's, uh, it makes it difficult to come up with quick answers. Well, a number two, 284, I think, was quite fascinating. The Earth actually has a companion in our orbit. It's not exactly a moon. It's more like analogous to, I guess, these asteroids that cluster in the orbit around, well, I guess, all the large planets, 60 degrees in front of or 60 degrees behind of, and I guess they thought Earth might have one, and, and by God, we do. Yeah, yeah, these uh, objects orbit around a spot called a Lagrangian point, which is just a fancy name for uh, French scientists um, back a couple hundred years ago who decided that there are stable points 
in any system that has two objects in it, like the Sun and Earth, uh, both 60 degrees ahead and 60 degrees behind in our orbit, and that objects can be basically stable there. They basically orbit around that point because the gravity acting from the sun is this, is basically balances the gravity acting from Earth, so it's kind of a stable point in the orbit. And that turned out to be true. Um, just a couple of years ago, we discovered that there was an object out in one of our uh, Lagrangian points um, called L4, for those of you who like to know all these facts. And as you mentioned, Jupiter has the most. Uh, they are called Trojan asteroids because most of them are named after uh, participants in the Trojan Wars. But it has more than a thousand of these objects in orbit around that, which probably isn't surprising since Jupiter is the biggest planet. You'd expect it to have the most of these kinds of objects. Wow. Well, I guess a final question I want to ask would be about, uh, I guess, let's pick fact number 209. There's this object out in the Kuiper Belt, Sedna. It's on this very strange 11,000-year orbit that takes it way, way out into space. And I guess I'd like to attach that um, factoid to the speculation, which has been the news lately, that some folks think that these weird orbits of these objects uh, indicate there's, there's some planets, substantial planets, way, way out in deep space. There, there is that speculation out there. And uh, actually, it's been speculated about for um, centuries, for that matter. But uh, probably within the last five years or so, scientists have really started to think a little bit more about these kinds of things and that there could be a fairly large planet, perhaps bigger than Earth even, that's lurking way, way out in the solar system, um, way beyond, say, 10 times farther than Pluto is from the sun, something out there. And it would be, even though it would be fairly large, it would reflect so little sunlight in our direction that it would be very difficult for astronomers here on Earth to pick it out. So there is that speculation that there might be something out there. Uh, turns out that we don't have enough observations of other objects that something like that might be affecting through its gravity to be able to calculate where it is. And that's basically the way astronomers discovered Neptune was by noting how it affected uh, the orbit of Uranus. So we don't really have any idea where in the sky it might be to start looking for it. Um, but there's, if, if I were to guess, I'd probably say the odds are 50-50 or so that there might be an object bigger than Earth way out in the solar system uh, orbiting our sun and that we haven't discovered, Jim. I'm laughing because I was about to ask you to make book on what you thought the odds were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, 50-50 is always a good guess. It, yes, it is. Say, well, yeah, I thought it might be. <laughs> yes, and I misspoke when I said the word term deep space referring to this area. Deep space is way out there. This is, this is fairly local, something in, really in our own solar system. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, Sedna has an orbit of about 11,400 years. An object that's halfway to the nearest star would have an orbit measured in millions of years. So it, it is relatively close by on the scale of the entire solar system. Very good. Well, I'm hoping we can bring UC Berkeley professor. I guess Richard Muller had this idea about Nemesis, a star out there. But, but then again, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention something about brown dwarfs, which, are, which apparently are, are a lot more out there than we thought. And recently we've discovered a couple that were, that were really close. I'm not sure they've made your list of 500, but we should probably talk about it. Yeah, it turns out the brown dwarfs are basically objects that are a little bit smaller than stars. They don't have enough mass to have ignited the nuclear fusion reactions that keeps stars, including the sun, going. Uh, so they were called brown dwarfs, not because they look brown, but because they needed something beyond red dwarfs, which are actually stars. And it turns out that of the six nearest 
objects to our solar system. Three of them are uh, in systems with brown dwarfs. And so these things are pretty close to us. As you might guess, they are very dim. I mentioned that the red dwarf Proxima Centauri isn't visible to the naked eye, and brown dwarfs are a lot dimmer than red dwarfs. And so these things are difficult to find. Uh, turns out a lot of them have been turned up in observations and surveys taken by infrared telescopes because they shine significantly brighter relative to the background at infrared wavelengths than they do in visible light. Any chance it'll turn out that our unseen companion is actually a brown dwarf? I guess that's an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> I don't think it would totally shock anyone if that turned out to be the case. Um, a brown dwarf doesn't have to be huge, so it's not something that would necessarily be something that obviously affected everything in the solar system like uh, some other um, big objects do, or closer in objects like Jupiter. So there could be something way out there the size of a brown dwarf that could be doing this stuff. We've been speaking with Astronomy Magazine editor Richard Talcott about their fabulous new issue on stands currently. About their, it's their 500th issue filled with 500 interesting facts and the usual assortment of wonderful uh, updates and what's going on up in the sky. I want to thank you very much for, um, for speaking with us, Richard. And just as we, as we close, is there any other factoid that, uh, out of this that, that you particularly were enamored by? Well, one of the cool things that I like anyway is about the uh, total solar eclipse that's going to be coming up in 2017. So we actually looked way back into history, back a couple of thousand years to when people were first learning about uh, the solar system and the universe. And we go a little bit into the future and look at the August 2017 eclipse, which is going to be crossing the United States from Oregon to South Carolina. And so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that. I've chased eclipses for the last uh, few decades. I've seen 10 total eclipses, and it'll be nice not to have to travel halfway across the world to see this one. Yes, indeed. I know we're wrapping this up, but I can't help but jump it back in and note that you, what your factoid that the longest possible eclipse is 7 minutes, 32 seconds, is interesting. I guess that one back in 1991 that you, that you surely saw, that I saw down in Mexico, was darn mm -hmm. near as long as one could be, theoretically. We won't see the likes of it for centuries. Yes, that's true. The one uh, in Baja, California, was a little bit over seven minutes long. Uh, seven minutes, 32 is the longest that we can have right now. But unfortunately, we won't, we won't see one of those for a few centuries yet. So <laughs> it's, uh, we're on the downswing at the moment. We won't have any that long. Yeah, good thing we caught it then. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and the magazine also looks like you run Eclipse Tours. I don't mind plugging that. I'm sure some listeners might be interested. There's a tour in Bali. In March 2nd, I guess, of next year, and uh, that, uh, that I'm sure that some folks might be uh, interested enough to sign up. Like I said, I, I enjoy chasing eclipses across the world, and it's always nice when they turn out to be in exotic places like Bali um, or China or Australia or things like that. So I've uh, gotten to see a fair amount of the world simply by going and chasing the moon shadow across Earth. Richard Talcott, it's been a great pleasure, and I hope that uh, I hope that you'll come on again when we have some exciting news from uh, Ceres and um, and Pluto. I'd love to. It's been my pleasure. Anyway, that was a lot of fun. At least it was for me. I hope it was for you. And if you don't like astronomy, I guess you can always listen to Inside over at Capital Public Radio. We're willing to bet they've never once talked about Ophiuchus. When you need a short break, I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax.